morning, everyone. Good to see you after Thanksgiving. My name is Pastor Matt Bach. And uh, for those of you watching online, you look good in your pajamas. And we wish that you could come join us here and be here in the room. You can wear your pajamas. It's okay. And uh, so we're going to dive right in. But one of the things that we wanted to kind of reflect back upon is that this last weekend, um, so this last week was Thanksgiving. I hope that you did not engage in gluttony too much. Um, you can confess that later to a pastor. And, uh, but uh, last weekend, we had our worship, prayer, and healing night in conjunction with a whole number of other churches. And you guys, God did some powerful and amazing things working up to that. And then at the night itself, God was doing works of healing. God was doing works of deliverance. And God is such an amazing and powerful God because just in the process, right, whether or not even some prayers are answered, you're watching people connect and be restored. And so we praise God not only for the things we're already aware of that God is doing to work in people's lives, but we praise God for the things that we might not even ever hear, right? The things that he is doing to change and deliver that we're not even aware of. We praise God for what we see and for what we haven't seen. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, today we're going to dive right into part 15 in our Called by God series, which is in 1 Timothy. And what we're going to be talking about today is a microcosm off of last week, off of what Pastor Lance talked about in 1 Timothy chapter 5. He talked about what a culture of honor looked like, what it should look like. And today we're going to see what does that look like within the workplace. And Pastor Lance had walked us through what respect for authority looks like, what sort of blessing comes when somebody submits under leadership, and also the reality that God defends those who submit under leadership, right? And today our passage specifically looks at slaves and masters, right? And so this is a very distinctive group, and we have to consider how these teachings on calling apply to such a specific group, because he's talking about all these different household situations. And that's what Paul's been doing. He's been walking through what they call household codes. It's perinesis in the Greek. And it's something that in the culture, people already understood what those household norms were. Within their culture, there was things that people expected. There was behaviors. There was practices. And Paul's looking at that backdrop. He's looking at these social functions. And he's trying to tie it theologically and spiritually with what God wants to see happen in the household of faith. With what God wants to see happen in the community of God's people, God's household. And and Paul's primary concern within the book of Timothy has constantly returned back to evangelism. He's constantly taking the people back and he wants to see orderliness and behavior that reflects God being sovereign, being in control of our lives and being good ambassadors for the gospel. And so we're going to dive in and read our passage and then I'm going to show you how we're going to go away from our passage from a little bit and then come back to it. But we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 1 and 2. It's page 993 in the Bibles at your seats. But 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 to 2. And you're going to be like, two verses, we'll be done in 10 minutes. Nope. Nope. First message was 55 minutes. Uh, It won't be that today. So so, uh, let's go ahead and read our passage. It goes like this. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. 
Now, it, it seems like a straightforward verse, but there's so much background that we have to cover in order to even get to an unpacking of the text. And part of the reason why this is important is because there have been people within our own U.S. history that have unpacked passages like this and said, look, Paul endorses slavery and has no problem with slavery. And so God endorses slavery and there is no problem with slavery. And you may be someone or you've talked to someone that they have brought up these types of challenges against the Christian church. I I actually have taught a sermon before within our student ministries called Five Things the Church Should Apologize For. Because it goes back through history and we have to recognize and sometimes own that although that was not us, people look back across history and they see these things. And so we have to understand the context of these passages and understand how it works. And so I want to address three specific layers that have to do with our passage before we actually get back to our passage. The first one is this. What was slavery like in the New Testament, in the Roman culture that they were in, and how was it also practiced in the Old Testament? Number two, how does the slave-master concept, how was that perceived in the U.S. in the past? How was it even justified by Christians that wanted to own slaves and justify slavery, right? And how do we address that error and look at how we can healthily interpret Scripture and not fall into that same mistake? And we also want to look at what is the purpose of our work. And so I'm going to take you through those three layers, and then we'll dive back into the text. So let's first talk talk about slavery in the New Testament world, because that's our nuance here, is that we are in a Roman Greco context. This is first century, and, and this is a class structure that's no longer present, and yet there's a stigma that's still very felt into the Western United States and even still into our common day. And so we have to unpack that a little bit. And you may have noticed that when I read the text... I use the word slave. And some of your Bibles probably had bondservant or servant. And the first thing you have to understand is that the original Greek uses a word called doulos. It comes up 130 times and it always was translated as slaves. Now, one of the things that happened is is as it was translated into English, because of the stigma of our own history, because of the stigma of the abuses and the horrible, tragic things that happened within slavery in the United States, it was hard for translators for the exception of one, Godspeed, that wanted to translate it over into slave because the minute you put that there, automatically it brings all the emotion, all the background of our history into that word. And so people started putting bondservant and servant, right, to kind of soften that. But we have to recognize that the word there is slave, that, that we have to unpack that a little bit. And a slave was someone who was the property of a household and they were assigned a range of duties. And that was a harsh social reality that somebody existed as the property of another person. And they were totally dependent on them and had no rights. And that is troublesome for us. But here's some of the things about that Roman context. There was 60 million plus slaves in the Roman Empire. Most of them were educated. Most of them were cultured. But simply by their numbers, slaves were looked at as a potential enemy. If there ever was a slave revolt, the Romans had to mercilessly put it down by force. You guys might remember the classic movie Spartacus, right? Which is somewhat about that type of context. What would it look like if slaves took up arms and how would Rome react to that? And I want you guys to understand something that in the ancient world, slavery generally generally was not based on the color of someone's skin. It was not based on race or ethnicity, except when people were captured in warfare But that's something that's an automatic contrast to the racist premise of slavery that happened in the West, that happened in the United States, that denied the full dignity of humans and people and lessened them. 
Slavery was not like that in the Roman Greco world. Many people were enslaved because of economic necessity. Most slaves were poor. Some were born into it, but there was an ideology of ancient slavery that was a necessary reality of life, and it was not considered evil within the general culture. We're not talking about Christian culture. We're talking about the general culture of the day. And people saw the abuses of slave traders and dealers, but within the social and economic function, they looked at it as a necessity, which is why a lot of people would actually get to a point of being poor that they would volunteer themselves into slavery and even sometimes sell themselves into slavery in order to clear a debt. A lot of slaves had a fair degree of security and opportunities for advancement. They enjoyed freedom at points, which is kind of an oxymoron, right? But, but a lot of them earned their living and worked in partnership with their owners. Slavery was not necessarily permanent in the, in the New Testament. There was a variety of ways for them to buy their freedom. Now let me slide back even a little bit farther into the ancient Near Eastern context and look at what the Old Testament did to guard the rights of slaves. Because there were slaves even in the Old Testament with the Jewish people. But they had rights that were very distinct and very different than even what the Romans had or what we ever had in our nation. Slaves could not be held for more than six years, according to Exodus 21, unless they chose to remain voluntarily. If somebody stole a person and sold them, anyone found in possession of that slave would be put to death. So you could not go take somebody from their nation, capture somebody to then trap them and sell them off. That was not allowed within scripture. Slaves who were abused by their masters were set free. If they, they had religious rights, they enjoyed civil rights, the murder of a slave brought punishment on the owner. Slaves had economic rights, including their own right to own their own slaves, which again seems like a little odd. They were treated as equal to the eldest son in the family, often, right? And, and so I'm not trying to, trying to glorify. I'm not trying to say, oh, slavery was good in the Greco-Roman world. What I'm trying to help us understand is it was very different than what we have experienced in our own nation. And yet, even in that time, right, in the, in the first century, slaves did not have the free rights of citizens. They were vulnerable to abuse, including physical and sexual abuse. And it was the bottom extreme low of the human condition and it was not desirable but it's where most of the poor were 60 million plus within the empire right and when the gospel came with the good news of acceptance and freedom before god slaves were the people that made up a considerable portion of the early church which is why what we just read in first timothy 6 1 to 2 matters so much because it hinged on this context of slaves Romans looked at how their slaves worshipped. They looked at what their slaves did, right? One um, Roman thinker named Cicero says that they commonly believed that slaves who dabbled in other religions would turn against their masters and overthrow the social order. This is why Paul had to speak into this, because there would be a fear of the Roman social structure of that system losing control. Right? If suddenly Christianity was making slaves go, we're not going to do this anymore, and they cause a revolt, they would be destroyed. And so Paul has to speak into this, right? And, and Paul um, is doing this, and he's not challenging the people to strike. He's not challenging them to march, to go out and to speak and make a fuss. Not that he doesn't encourage that with other things, but he tells them, live in a culture of honor. Live in a culture of love in the situations that you're in. Where you work you can make an impact by, what, by, by, by realizing who you follow. 
and what that honor looks like. And he would say that to slaves in this passage and say it to slaves and masters in a number of other passages. But this is where our fill-in-the-blank comes in on your paper, where it says this. We make a bolder statement with honor than with a megaphone. We make a bolder statement with honor than with a megaphone. Because we're all about raising our voice. We're all about sharing our opinions. And Paul's saying, no, it's living in that culture of honor. That's the thing that leaves an impact more than all the things we do to raise our voices. Now let's slide over and talk briefly about how slavery was perceived in practice in our history. And we have to stir on that reality in our context because we have to recognize and we have to admit that slavery in our culture, slavery in our day and age, was all based on dishonor. It was all based on showing no dignity to another race. It was something that lessened people. And it's something I don't have the time or the expertise to cover, but we have to care about this enough to mention it, and we cannot ignore it. And so I want to give you a couple things just to think about, and I want to show you some of the ways Christians played into that and even justified it by Scripture. Right? But the first thing is, is that slavery in our context became the consumption of humans. It was not part of a, just a social and economic system. It became something dominated by jealousy and greed. And it was about the strong being over the weak. And it was a consumption of one person by another. People seen as commodities to be gained, conquests to be won, tools to be used. And it was something that was blatant and horrific. And it had violations of people's rights. And the consequences of that weren't just for those who were abused. It was for the abuser as well. Because that was something that it messed with the spirit of everybody in the United States. Not just, not just the African Americans, not just the white Americans. Whoever came into that was dealing and experiencing this abuse. And so slavery became a war against what it means to be human. And it was something, you guys, that has done a, a lot more than I think we're willing to often realize, right? And that leads to my second point, that there is a cultural trauma with ramifications that are still present in our current world. This is something we're actually going to talk about more next year in 2018, something that Pastor Lance and a number of us have been doing research and development on to just talk about that cultural trauma and being willing to look at and acknowledge that there was a ripple effect and there is a ripple effect, and a lot of us just want to sweep it under the rug and pretend that everything is fine now. Oh, it's better. We're not doing that anymore. But it's not. Not in terms of the trauma, right? And so we have to sometimes realize that the church bears part of the guilt of the sins of slavery in human history. And that guilt cannot be ignored. It can only be confessed and it can only be forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? So we have to go and understand that our notions that we have of slavery, when we hear that term, they're drawn from racial slavery of the pre-Civil War and the Civil Right era. Right? And it bears some resemblance to the slavery in the ancient world, but it's very distinct in its context. And so what I, what I really want to just take the time to talk about is the reality that in that period, Christians were justifying that action of slavery and that dishonor of other people. They were saying, our Bibles say so. And let me tell you, show you four things that they would say. Number one, they, say, they would say Jesus never spoke against it. In a world that was fuel, fueled by Roman slavery, Jesus never said anything to undo it. 
they would say that Apostle Paul specifically commanded slaves to obey their masters. What we just read, and also it comes up in Ephesians 6, in Titus 2, in, in Colossians 3, it comes up in many places. They would say, number three, that Paul returned a runaway slave, Philemon, to his master. So even when he had a chance to free someone, he would return him back to his master. So slavery is okay. And then number four, they would say slaves play a subordinate role from God just like women do. Right? Their defense of slavery was based on Old and New Testament teaching that slaves would be obedient to their masters. And the reason why we have to talk about this is we have to see why it's necessary to interpret the Bible properly so that we do not fall into the same error and start pulling passages out of context to justify our actions, especially when it's dishonoring and ruining the lives of other people. That's why context matters. That's why I have to take almost 15 minutes of my message just to set up context, right? Because we have to figure out how do we deconstruct the justification of the past so that we don't fall into the same piece. And let me give you a couple points on that. We're almost done. First... When you tell someone to submit to an authority, that does not imply that that authority is morally approved. Anytime you see a scripture that is telling somebody to submit or to live within that situation, that is not God necessarily saying that that situation is morally right. You see God tell the the Jewish people that are taken as slaves into exile in Babylon to live in the city, live for the good of the city, and submit to the people there. While at the same time, the prophets are prophesying about how Babylon is going to fall because of the wickedness there. You have Peter um, telling telling wives to submit to a husband's authority in 1 Peter 3, even to those who are disobedient to the word. You have Peter telling Christians to submit to governing authorities, even though those authorities were persecuting them, that the emperors were killing Christians, and he's saying, submit. In none of those situations are the people as mouthpieces of the Lord saying, this is something that's okay. They're trying to show us what is the purpose that God is calling you to in submitting right now. Because God may have a purpose to expand his gospel and expand his kingdom by you living as this ambassador and this light with honor. The second thing, Paul himself condemns the buying and selling of human beings at the beginning of his letter to Timothy. Right? If you were to go to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, he starts going through a list of people that are lawless and disobedient. And he goes through people that strike their mothers and fathers, murderers, um, sexual immorality, and he includes in that list enslavers. It literally means kidnappers in the Greek, where he actually focuses in on the vocabulary of his culture and goes, this is something that is abusive and a destructive, and it is not from the Lord. So he actually establishes that point. But I think to get more practical, I appreciate what Abraham Lincoln famously said. Because he says, whenever I hear anyone arguing for slavery, I feel a strong impulse to see it tried on him personally. Which I'm just like, yes! Like that's, that's trying to put people into that context of going, are you really going to say this is okay? Are you really going to try to say God is saying this is okay? You sit in that context for just a day, if not a week, if not a month, right? Why don't you experience this? And so the reason why I'm doing all this, you guys, is that slavery was a difficult problem for our church, and it was a difficult problem for the church biblically. A first century slave 
they had the hope of being freed. And that was more than a dream. And it was a possibility because a lot of them in that culture and the Roman culture could actually excel so far that they might be freed or released. And so within the church, as the teaching of the gospel came and it had an accent on freedom and an accent on equality and it shifted away from social stratification, people being on different levels, that fueled Christian slaves to have more freedom. And how do you... You can hear the rain come down with that, right? Um, How do you implement freedom and how do you implement that equality that the gospel talks about in a world system that hinges on the practice in their culture of slavery? Right? And this is where I just want us to be reminded, humans are human. And whether it's sinning elders, like we talked about last week, or how to handle widows, or slavery practice, people were roughly and dishonorably handling their household community situations. Paul had to speak into that. The Lord had to speak into that and give direction. And not specifically on slavery, but how the gospel can frame our approach to work and our approach to honor, and how transformation actually happens in our society. Because I think we've gotten that messed up. How do we transform our culture? And I think we go down all the wrong paths on that. And so just as the relationship between master and slaves was the primary economic relationship of the ancient world, the relationship for us in our modern day is between boss and employee. Right? That's what we're used to. And we have to apply this teaching accordingly. And this is why, to, to me, it's worth taking that moment to also unpack what is work. Because a lot of us think that work is part of the curse, which is biblically inaccurate. Because Adam and Eve worked in the garden before the curse ever came. Now, the curse brought toil that now it was going to be harder to work, even with all the technology, right? It's still hard for us to work, right? But I want you to understand something in Scripture. One of the ways it views work is work is your worship. And there's actually a specific word in the Old Testament, a word called avad in the book of Hebrew. If you look in Exodus chapter 1 to chapter 7, you're going to see that word in the Hebrew come up a number of times. And you're going to see it used for when the people were making bricks and they were under hard work. And you're going to see it of them going to worship the Lord at the mountain. And so what you're going to see happen in that text is it unites this picture of work and worship. And it means every day that we go out and go to our jobs, we go into an act of worship. We go into an act where worship expresses God's total superiority in what we're doing. And that becomes our worship. And most of us miss looking at worship as serving or working for God. We we stop at the side of just doing what we just did. We stop and go, I went and I worshiped with the body of Christ on Sunday morning. And then we'll go out into our jobs and you won't go out and go, man, I just went and worshiped this whole week. You'll say, I went and I worked this whole week. And you have to start understanding that these are one and the same. Now, I know some of our jobs are boring and they're routine and some of our jobs are stressful and they demand so much from us. And I would say that that aspect of talking about slaves and masters applies a lot here because most people say that they slave away at their jobs. There's a statistic, it's a little old now, but it says 70% of Americans do not like their jobs. Whoa. Of 70%, 90% don't even want to get up in the morning to go to work, but everyone is so consumed with everything we have, our comforts, our leisure, our stuff, that our jobs are necessary. And so there's a very famous bumper sticker that John MacArthur highlighted that says, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. 
right? To put us in that context of we are going to work just to supply what we need in our life. And that's the two different functions that I think we get confused is that there is a function of our job to provide income and money and the basic needs of life. But a lot of us stop there and work becomes nothing else than making ends meet. But in scripture, work is meant to help provide for others and to worship the Lord by serving him. And that can't sit on the back burner. That has to go to the forefront of our mind. We need to be reminded of our responsibilities and we need to rediscover a biblical theology of work. What does that mean to worship God and to be careful about how we come across? Because when you're working next to your fellow employees, when you're working next to your bosses, you are worshiping the Lord and everybody's watching. And so we have to understand that. We most often and most commonly interact with the world in our workplace. You do more ministry at your job than you ever do in this church building. You are around people that don't know the Lord and don't have a relationship at your jobs than you ever will experience in this room. And so that context matters that much. So now with all that background, 20, 30 minutes later, let's get back into our text right in first Timothy chapter six. So we're going to jump right back in at verse one. It's only two verses, so it shouldn't take us long to unpack, but this is what it says. Let all who under, who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, right? And it starts by talking about this yoke, right? Which was an, uh, an imagery that came from livestock. That was this idea of being weighed down by what you're experiencing. And what it's trying to say is that although you are free in Christ, Although you have been set free because of your relationship with Jesus, you still function within the challenges of the social order. And so, so Paul's just acknowledging that. And he's saying, even within that context, you need to regard your masters as worthy of honor. And, and why consider them worthy of honor? Well, that word regard makes up the whole reason why. Because regard in the Greek means to refer to an estimate based on objective criteria, not on feelings. Which means that he's saying you need to honor and show worth to your master, not because you feel like it, but simply because he is your authority, right? Now, we don't like that because we live in a culture of feelings. We are going to share our opinion. We're going to share our feelings. We're going to go on Yelp. We're going to give a review. We're going to let everybody know how we feel about this or that, right? And he's saying, no, this has to be something that you just realize that you are in a place, this person is your boss, and you're going to show him their honor simply from that fact. They may be incompetent, they may be immoral, they may be unreasonable, they may be overbearing, but you still just recognize their authority. And you might pray some prayers where you're like, Lord, please remove them, right? But you're still going to honor them in the role that they're in. And a lot of us go, well, what does that look like, right? Because all of our lives are to reflect servanthood. So how do we demonstrate God's love? How do we demonstrate kindness within that structure? And I think Paul tries to simplify it. He says, simply be obedient. Be totally and faithfully devoted to whoever you're working for. If your main role is to do A and B, do A and B and C and onward. Don't work hard just when your master is watching, just when your boss is watching. Don't do it just for the paycheck. Do it because you know who you serve altogether. And you know that God is working purposes within this. And I think this is hard for us because a lot of us, we look at everything as justice before honor. And we go, man, if, if they're just being a bad boss though and this sucks, 
Why should I have to show them honor? And you guys are going to see all throughout Scripture that people are charged to show honor even within unjust situations. First Peter 2, Peter will urge slaves to live with unjust and unkind masters and to be submissive and endure silently. He tells wives to do that with husbands. In 1 Peter 3, 9, he says that you will be rendered with blessing when you are faced with evil and insult. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to turn your cheek and to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. Right? All of these things seem impossible. How are you supposed to do this? How are you supposed to act in honor when injustice is happening? And it is impossible. And it is ridiculous. Unless the Holy Spirit is within us. Because when the Holy Spirit is within you, he frees you up to move past all of that and actually honor someone. And then they see the honor and they don't understand why you're honoring them even when they know how they're treating you. Right? And I could keep going. Ephesians 6, Colossians 3. But let's keep moving through the text. Right? So let's look at the second part of verse 1. It says, Regard your own masters as worthy of honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Where he kind of tells us this is not about you. Because when it says um, reviled, it's saying it's actually the term blasphemy. The same thing we say that you should never do with the Holy Spirit. Or if you do these things, you blaspheme the Lord. And that word means to speak against something to damage its reputation. And what he's saying in the passage is, when you're doing this, it's not about damaging your reputation. It's not about damaging your boss's reputation. You are damaging God's reputation. You are damaging what the message of the gospel and what the church is saying. And so when you dishonor your master, you're marring God's name. And so this is about a good testimony. This is about the work of the gospel not being hindered. This is about someone not questioning what a faith in God looks like simply, simply because of how you act at work. Every believer is called to be a witness. There's a great um, writer named R.C. Lenski, and he says this, If a Christian slave dishonored his master and disrupted the household in any way by disobedience, by acting disrespectfully, by speaking shamefully of his master, the worst consequence would not be the beating he would receive, but the curses he would cause his master to hurl at this miserable slave's God, his religion, and the teaching he had embraced. They would say, so this is what this new religion teaches its converts, and they would conclude that foreign Christian teaching is the disturbance and should be rejected. And so Paul is trying to get Timothy to to tell the people, wait, yes, Paul is trying to get Timothy to tell the people that we have to bring the slander and the suspicion of society for Christians to an end. And we need to live lives that silence slander and attract new believers. That they look at how you work at your jobs and they go, man, what is it about that person? A great example of this that we see in scripture is in Genesis 39 with Joseph. Right? Joseph was a rich example of this because he understood that the way he handled himself on the job was a reflection of his God. And he was in a very unjust situation, taken by his brothers, sold into slavery, constantly kind of duped. Right? And in every situation, he kept going, I'm going to continue to be a slave of God. And I'm going to work for him and I'm going to excel. And people are going to see that. Right? And he became such a beautiful example of this. Right, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they do the same thing. And even in the end of 1 Timothy 5, he says, um, in the context of honor, good works are conspicuous. They're evident. And even when they're not, they can't remain hidden. 
people are going to see how you act, right? Now, this makes me always ask this question. Are Christians poor and disrespectful workers? What would your boss say? If I went to your job and I went, hey, let me ask you about so-and-so, or if I went to your fellow employees, what would they say about your work ethic, about how you honor other people at the job? That should make you a tiny bit uncomfortable. Unless you're like, no, I'm awesome, I'm perfect. Right? But here's what happens, you guys. A Christian who is committed to reaching the world for Christ and realizes that so much of that happens at their workplace will see that there are plenty of situations to live out their faith with people. And your coworkers may not be very interested in your Christianity. On occasion, you're probably even going to get ridiculed and mocked for your faith. But when the day of trouble comes, who are they going to run to? When they're confronted with death, death or suffering, who are they going to talk to for comfort? And when the Holy Spirit awakens them to their spiritual need, who will they first go to for the words of life? They're going to turn to the first man or woman who has ever shown honor and love to every person they're encountering. And they're going to say, I want to talk to that person. Recently, my wife was at a massage school and had a chance to just live out that honor of God and of people. And she was shocked at what happened when a number of people came to her afterwards going, man, I want to hear more, and I would love to go to church with you. It's just being an example and a display. But, but let's continue on. I, I, I want to keep talking about this, but I also want to, want to go on to the, the second verse where it says, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. So now Paul goes into another situation and he goes, now there's some of you that are Christian slaves working for Christian masters. And and in this passage, he's saying, you are in the present actually actively doing this, where you are showing disrespect to your masters. So Paul's correcting something that's already happening. And he's saying, by you being disrespectful, you are thinking down, you are undervaluing your masters. And what he's trying to say is that believers are not to undervalue the authority of their Christian employer by treating them as equals on the job. Because what was going on is, you know, passages like Galatians 3, where it says there is no, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. Slaves and Christians are hearing that and going, yes, we're all equal. And they're not realizing that that verse does not eliminate race or social function or sexual distinction, Right? All of those are still there. It's saying in the household of God, you are all equal. There is no differentiation. But guess what? When you go back out into the culture, it still sees that. And so Paul's saying you can't just go and toss this off. And what I believe was happening is that slaves were going, you know, well, my my boss is a Christian. And so because of that, I'm a Christian. We go to the same church. And so obviously he's going to treat me nicer. And I don't have to do all that work, right? And you're not going to punish me. I'm a brother in Christ. Right? And we start treating situations like that. If you've ever been someone that has been a boss with Christian employees or you're a Christian employee with a Christian boss, these dynamics come up. You're also watching each other for how you live spiritually and morally. Right? And these are the types of things that are coming up. And you have to understand that it was not uncommon for mature believers to be employed by an immature one or for even elders within the church to be an employee and there's someone in their church that's a new believer that's their boss. This was the real context of what was going on. And so Paul's trying to address that, right? And these slaves would say, but there are brothers, right? 
That was like their slogan. And that because of that, we're on a level playing field. And we have this relationship. And Paul's going, you can't leverage that to not respect them. And you can't leverage that to undervalue them. But let's look at the last part. He says, rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. And Paul's trying to show us spiritual equality does not destroy the civil distinctions. And there's this danger that we're going to regard our Christianity as an excuse to not live in honor with other Christians, that we can be slack, that we can be inefficient. And he's saying, no, we have to serve and function better than all other things. We need to stand out. And so Christians in the workplace were supposed to treat one another with deep affection. And that passage uses a word that we don't catch in the English, but when it says to serve them all the better since those who benefit by their good service, that word good service is a picture of a wealthy giver coming before their master and going, I want to bless you with this huge donation. And it's saying the slave is that wealthy giver. And he's the one coming to his master and going, here, this is going to be something that's going to bless you and blow your socks off. And that's such a reversal, right? Because how is a slave supposed to actually do that for their master? Paul says that happens with honor. And when that happens, both parties benefit. There's a mutual blessing when both are serving one another in the will of God. And he says, you do this because they are beloved. You do this because they are someone that you have a connection with in Jesus Christ. So he goes, rather than using it as a reason to go, I'm going to dishonor them and I'm not going to respect them. He goes, use it as a chance to bless Christian brothers in an even greater way, to be a wealthy giver into their lives. And all of this is part of a missionary motivation. Part of this is something that's trying to help us understand how do we do this so that it ends up propelling the gospel forward, right? Because when people see this, maybe they're going to see the news of Jesus Christ and the people in this world are going to encounter Jesus because of what they see happening at your jobs. Too often, you guys, we default to going, I just got to get everyone here to church. And maybe if they hear Pastor Lance, maybe if they see our worship, maybe if they experience Kids Way, then they'll encounter Jesus. They're watching how you work right now, and that's where they're going to encounter Jesus. And we have to have that on the forefront of our mind. Now, I don't have the time, but there's other passages that talk about all this, but it gives challenge and command to masters in what they're supposed to do with their slaves. We're going to talk about this a little bit more next year because we're going to be kind of diving in briefly into the book of Philemon. So I'm going to leave it for then. But what I do want to say is that the biblical writers, they were sensitive to the expectations of the wider social society. They were looking at this world and they knew as well as anyone that the household, the community of faith was the basic social unit and it was where God was going to work. And they knew that disorder at that level no matter what the cause, would spell disaster for the church's reputation in the world. They knew that the church had to live and move in society in a way that communicated with our world and showed us what this can look like and also showed them what God's household could be so that people would not look at it and go, I don't want to be a part of that. They would look at it and go, who are those people and I want to be around them. And so God's presence in the world aims at reformation and transformation but it never uncritically accepts what our world has set up. And as Pastor Lance talked about last week, this all goes back to the heart. 
It's all about what's happening inwardly. Because our aim is not to see how little can be forced out of us at our jobs, but how much we can willingly do. And to recognize that Christ, when he came in his first coming, he did not come in and seek to overthrow the existing social structures by force. He came in and he introduced his Holy Spirit into the lives of the people in the church. And then those people went out and individual by individual, with the Holy Spirit inside of, inside of them, they transformed society. And that's why you guys, as centuries went on, Christianity so permeated civilization that in the end, slaves were freed voluntarily in the Roman world and not by force. Because people started figuring out that slavery was contrary to the will of God because of the people and how they lived in their situations. And there's this tremendous lesson, you guys, on where true reform stems from. It's not by force. It's not by legislation. I'm not saying those things are unnecessary. But I can tell you that as I studied all this and I was reading all the Roman laws and all the philosophers that were addressing mistreatment and abuse within slavery, that they created all sorts of rules and all sorts of laws. But in the end, you guys, it still left lawless, corrupt slave dealers and traders and masters who functioned out of sinful and selfish hearts. It didn't matter how many laws and how many rules and how much legislation went out. They needed people to go and embody what God wanted in our workplace, in the world. So you guys, reform comes through the penetration of the spirit of Christ into the human situation. But let me close it off with one more just thought. I kind of hinted at this earlier on, but God's word takes us even past the workplace, past this past issue of slavery in our world, and it takes us beyond all this into the image that actually gets used of our relationship with the Lord. Because we are called to be slaves of Christ, to be slaves of God. It's one of the examples the Lord uses to define our relationship with him. And although Jesus calls disciples, so there's an element of choice in us becoming subordinate to him, we are still called to be slaves to him. And it's something that we can do because of who God is. He is the one and only person that can be a true master that does not oppress us. Because any other master in this world is only a master when they have a subordinate. Jesus Christ is Lord simply because he's Lord, not because you follow him, not because you serve for him. Because he's already master and already Lord, it means that you can properly work yourself out from the slavery of this world and all these different systems that we're enslaved to and put ourselves under the authority and the master of Jesus Christ so that he leads you in your life and you can trust him in that. And you can take hope within that. It's precisely because he does not need us, because his status does not rest on us, that he actually can lead us and he can serve us. And that's the best picture, you guys, is Jesus Christ. What did he do? John 13. He put on the apparel of a slave and got down and washed his disciples' feet. And he says, even I can do this. Even I can show honor when I am the master. And what does he tell the disciples right after that? Imitate me. Do what I'm doing. Says the one at the table, I'm greater. And yet I understand that I'm here to serve. I'm here to honor. 
I'm here to love and go and do that in your workplaces. It means total availability and total devotion to God. It means you saying, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. I'm going to be obedient to your commands. And even when I'm not clear on what your commands are, I'm going to figure out what's pleasing to you and do that, Lord. And so my challenge to us, you guys, from this passage is serve obediently. Work completely. Work respectfully. Work eagerly. Work excellently, excellently as if you're working to Jesus Christ himself. And work spiritually. Because that is your worship. You are going to go from here today and you are going to worship the rest of this week. And everybody gets a chance to see who your God is simply by that. Amen? Amen. So I'm going to pray for you guys, but uh, I like giving resources. And uh, if you want to get a great overview of this, there's a great book called Slave of Christ by Murray Harris. I know some of you are like, why didn't you just give me the book in the beginning? I wouldn't have to sit through all this, right? But this is a great book that covers everything in way more detail than what we did. But let me pray for us, and then you can head out. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being the one and only master. We thank you for being the one that we can truly follow. And God, we're asking for the work of your Holy Spirit to transform our minds and hearts so that we can go and worship you at the thing that dominates all of our time, our jobs, our work. God, may people see you compelling us and may we honor those above us. May we honor those around us. May we honor those below us. And God, may we do what we've seen you do as you took on flesh and dwelt among us. And so God, we want to live lives that change this world. We want to see people not treated as slaves. We want to see one another and we want to see your kingdom come. And so we ask this all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said... Amen.